You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon, Episode 26, The Promised Land. Thanks for joining me. We left off last time in early May of 1796. Napoleon had just launched the northern Italian offensive that he'd been planning for over a year. Any exultation he felt at this long-awaited moment was drowned by anxiety. The Austrians had met his preliminary maneuvers with unexpected aggressiveness, forcing Napoleon to move up his timetable by several days. The Army of Italy was not ready, and Napoleon and his generals were scrambling. Before we return to the narrative, I'd like to finish introducing the Army of Italy. We talked last time about the general state of the army, quite poor to summarize as briefly as possible but we didn't talk much about the personalities who would be leading this ragtag army into Piedmont. As I mentioned last time, the leadership of the Army of Italy represented a rare confluence of talent, and many of them will play important roles as our story continues, as well as being colorful characters in their own right. As we talk about the military operations of the campaign, I think it's important to remember that Napoleon's subordinates were much more than names on a map, being moved around like pieces on a chessboard. They were human beings, with their own unique talents and weaknesses. The first Italian campaign didn't just spring fully formed from Napoleon's brain, it was a human endeavor, influenced by the characters of the men who carried out his orders. Some of these people should already be familiar to you. His two aides, Junot and Marmont, were there, so was Joachim Murat, the young cavalry officer from Vendémiaire. Younger brother Louis Bonaparte was on Napoleon's staff, learning the military trade firsthand. Once the campaign got underway, Joseph Bonaparte joined the army as well. We've also already met the man who was probably the greatest commander in the army under Napoleon, André Massena. But there were probably several of his fellow officers who would have taken that title in almost any other army in history. The most colorful of Napoleon's new subordinates was 39-year-old General Pierre Augereau. He commanded a division, and was Messina's right-hand man and closest confidant. Augereau was physically a beast, tall and built like an athlete. He had a huge honking nose and a slightly goofy face, topped with a dome of curly brown hair and pair of prodigious sideburns that wouldn't look out of place on a 1970s detective. He was crude, boastful, and boisterous, and loved nothing more than a good fight, whether with his fists, a sword, or an army. His soldiers called him the Proud Bandit. Ogero's biography is a bit mysterious. He came from humble origins, born in the slums of Paris, but beyond that, everything is a bit murky. He told a lot of tall tales about himself, the types of stories you would only be tempted to believe about a larger-than-life character. We do know that he joined the French royal army in his youth. Augereau immediately excelled as a soldier, but his hot temper and insubordination blew any chance for advancement. Eventually, his bad behavior culminated in desertion. This is where we lose track of Augereau. According to his unreliable word, he wandered east, reaching as far as modern-day Lebanon, and served in the Russian army under the famous general Alexander Suvorov and in the Prussian army under Frederick the Great, 
before eventually settling down in eastern Germany, where he taught fencing. I very much doubt all of Augereau's stories of adventure from his youth were true. It wasn't that uncommon for professional soldiers to serve in a foreign army, even in more than one foreign army, but it seems like a pretty big coincidence that he happened to fight under two of the most legendary commanders of the mid-18th century. But Augereau had a big, forceful personality, and he seemed like such a consummate soldier and adventurer, so people believed it. Even today, you can find history books that repeat these stories like they're obviously true and verified. The part about working as a fencing master may actually be true. Augereau was reputedly one of the best duelists in Napoleon's army. He finally resurfaced in France in 1782. There was an amnesty for deserters, so Augereau rejoined the royal army. He married a Greek woman he met on a mission to southern Italy just before the revolution. Some sources describe Madame Augereau as charming and beguiling, others as unbearably coarse and crude. Knowing her husband, both were probably true. However high he rose, Augereau never put on pretensions. Even after Napoleon made him a duke, he never lost the manners and bearing of a brawler from the streets of Paris. This, combined with his bravery on the battlefield, endeared him to his men. Augereau was a strict commander, but they saw him as one of their own, not just another stuffy officer. As you might imagine, he was not long on book learning, even on relevant topics like warfare, politics, or geography. His politics were uncomplicated, passionate, and revolutionary. He was proud to be, as he put it, a poor Paris boy and to be a Frenchman. He believed the country should belong to the common people and despised anything that smacked of tyranny. Augereau's rough manners may have endeared him to the common soldiers, but those in higher social strata often wrote him off as a stupid brute. He certainly wasn't sophisticated, and he did have a violent streak, but Augereau wasn't a bad man, and he certainly wasn't a bad soldier. Whatever his faults, he was loyal, generous, and brave, and a major asset to the Army of Italy. Another division was commanded by Jean-Mathieu Philibert Serrier. Serrier was among the oldest of the group, at 54. He had been with the army since the age of 13, 41 years under the colors. In many ways, he was Augereau's opposite, stern, severe, aristocratic, and straight-laced. A deep scar cut across the lower half of Serrier's face, giving him a permanently sinister appearance. He clung stubbornly to his powdered wig long after they had fallen out of fashion, although that may have been due to baldness rather than stodginess. Serrier was among the most experienced officers in the entire French military. He had fought in dozens of battles against a whole host of enemies, including Pasquale Paoli during the invasion of Corsica. He'd been wounded several times and been awarded the Order of Saint-Louis, one of the highest decorations available to soldiers in the old regime. Nevertheless, Serrier embraced the revolution, and in 1792 strapped on his sword to go to war one more time. Like many officers of noble blood, Serrier fell under suspicion during the Terror and was imprisoned, but was saved by the timely intervention of a powerful patron, Lazare Carnot. Serrier was a strict disciplinarian, He'd lived most of his life under the rigid, often brutal regulations of the old pre-revolutionary army. He still believed that drill and discipline were the essential elements to creating good soldiers. Despite this, he was popular with his men. Serrier could be harsh, but he was always fair, and he took the happiness and well-being of his troops just as seriously as he took drill and discipline. Most importantly, he won battles, and that kept them alive. Serrier might not have had the natural brilliance of men like Napoleon or Massena, but he was a good student and a keen observer, and he had seen and learned quite a lot during his four decades in the army. Serrier was an invaluable source of knowledge and continuity in an army dominated by young officers. Unfortunately, his Spartan lifestyle had taken a toll. By 1796, his health was already beginning to fail. Aside from Napoleon, there were two other notable Corsicans with the army, 
General of Division Rafael Casabianca, and Brigadier General Jean-Baptiste Cervoni. Casabianca was older than most of the officers, nearly 60. He came from an ancient and prestigious Corsican noble family. Before the revolution, he had been the Count of Casabianca. Nevertheless, his personal views were quite radical and pro-French, so he ultimately sided with the Jacobins. After Pasquale Paoli broke with Paris, Casabianca had been the Republic's choice to lead their remaining forces on Corsica. It was a doomed assignment, but Casabianca mounted a surprisingly effective campaign, holding out against the combined forces of Paoli and the British Mediterranean fleet for the better part of a year. Casabianca was no military genius, but he was resourceful and a natural leader. His fellow Corsican, Jean-Baptiste Cervoni, had gotten his start on Casabianca's staff. Brigadier General Cervoni's career had oddly mirrored Napoleon's. They were both Corsican, of course, and they were both clients of Salicetti, who had made their reputations at Toulon. Cervoni had a brilliant military mind, but was also a bit of a hothead who preferred to lead from the front, an instinct that endeared him to his men, but would eventually get him killed. He was 30 years old at the beginning of the campaign. The Army of Italy's cavalry commander was an unlikely figure, a 52-year-old Bavarian, General Heinrich Stengel. Stengel was a career soldier who had joined one of the many regiments of the old Royal Army that specifically recruited Germans. As a foreigner, serving in the most pro-royalist branch of the army as an officer, Stengel was the last person anyone would have expected to support the revolution, but he did. Predictably, he was arrested during the terror. He was found innocent, but Stengel was so disgusted with the whole affair that he retired from the army, only to be coaxed back after Thermidor. Brigadier General Charles Edward Jennings de Kilmaine was also a foreigner, as you could probably guess. He was an Irishman, from a family of the old Gaelic aristocracy that had been dispossessed by the British. Like many of their kind, the Kilmaine family made a living as soldiers on the continent. The Catholic courts of Europe welcomed Irish exile officers into their armies. Kilmaine had served with the Austrian army, then with the French Royal Army. But even before 1789, he was a revolutionary at heart. Kilmaine had fought in the American War of Independence, where he became an enthusiastic convert to radical Enlightenment ideas. Ideas he hoped to one day put into practice in Ireland, using the power of a French army. Despite his enthusiasm for the cause, even Kilmaine eventually ran afoul of the government during the Terror and was imprisoned. Fortunately for him, Lazar Carnot recognized his potential, protected him, and sought to his release after Thermidor. He was a brilliant, charismatic soldier, known within the army simply as Brave Kilmaine. He led a colorful life when he wasn't in the field, jockeying with the other Irish Republican exiles for leadership over their little movement, and serving as a leading light among the small community of Anglophone radicals in Paris. He counted Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Paine among his friends. Second to Napoleon, the most important figure in the Army of Italy at the start of the campaign didn't hold any command position at all. He was General Louis-Alexandre Berthier, Chief of Staff of the Army. Berthier was 42 years old in 1796, and had been with the Army his entire adult life. In past episodes, I've mentioned this institution of the Army staff. These were officers who were trained from the beginning of their careers to serve as bureaucrats and organizers within the Army, rather than in field commands. Berthier was one of the first officers in the French Army trained for this role, and he would prove to be one of the best. Like Kilmaine, Berthier had become a convert to radicalism during his service in America, and he welcomed the revolution but, nonetheless, fell under suspicion during the Terror. Are you seeing a pattern here? Fortunately for Berthier, he had served in the headquarters of some of the most senior leaders in the Republican Army. A lot of important people held him in very high esteem, and so he was protected from the most severe consequences of this suspicion. But Berthier's powerful friends were not able to save his career. He was drummed out of the service in 1793. 
His defenders got him reinstated after a few months, but he was not restored to the rank of general until after Thermidor. As a staff officer, Berthier wasn't well known among the public. He didn't have any great victories or heroic deeds to his name. But within the army, he was viewed with awe, almost like a miracle worker. He was among the first of a new breed. Very few people on Earth had the training and experience to do what he did, and he was one of the best at doing it. He could conjure up supplies and equipment seemingly out of nowhere, move troops and convoys with unnatural speed, and coordinate plans of endless complexity. He certainly didn't look the part. Berthier was short and stocky with a mess of curly hair, but he probably had the sharpest mind in the whole French army. In 1796, he was chief of staff for the Army of Italy. This was a powerful position. Of course, as commander-in-chief, Napoleon would be the one crafting strategy and issuing orders. But as chief of staff, it was Berthier's responsibility to draft those orders into formal instructions for the generals, to plot those strategies on a map, and to make sure the men and material all got where they were supposed to be. So, as you can see, it was vitally important that an army's chief of staff and commander-in-chief develop a good working relationship. Berthier was not Napoleon's choice for this position. He inherited Berthier from his predecessor. Fortunately for all involved, the two men immediately clicked. Each of them would always have closer personal friendships, but as an intellectual relationship, a meeting of the minds, this was a perfect match. Both Napoleon and Berthier were rigorously analytical and detail-oriented, with unstoppable work ethics. Within a few months of collaboration, Berthier could anticipate Bonaparte's thoughts, understand what he meant from a short, general utterance, and translate it into clear, concise orders for the army. Berthier filtered information for Napoleon. He quickly came to recognize what the boss needed to know and what wasn't worth bothering him over. Over time, the two men even developed tandem sleeping schedules, so there was always at least one of them awake at any given hour. Napoleon would later say of Berthier, quote, No other could have replaced him. End quote. And in fact, no one would. Berthier would stay by Napoleon's side until his first exile in 1814. When he was on campaign, Napoleon traveled and took his meals with Berthier which I think probably makes him the individual who had the most personal contact with Bonaparte throughout his life. After Napoleon's rise to power, Berthier was one of the only people authorized to issue orders in the emperor's name, and the only one who Napoleon's marshals actually obeyed, other than Napoleon himself. I can't think of anyone in Napoleon's life whose intellect he valued more than Berthier's. It's hard to overestimate his contributions to Napoleon's triumphs. He was practically Bonaparte's second brain. Still, it's easy to lose sight of him. Berthier didn't do the most glamorous work, but he'll be in the background for almost the rest of our story, making invaluable, if unexciting, contributions. After Waterloo, Napoleon would remark, quote, If Berthier had been here, I never would have suffered this misfortune. End quote eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. The last character I'll introduce today is, on paper, the least important. In fact, he was barely even an officer. Brigadier General Jean Lannes. Lan was another one of those veterans of the Royal Army who had been held back from promotion by his humble background. Once the war broke out, he rose rapidly through the ranks, from sergeant to brigadier general in only three years. He was the same age as Napoleon, 
27 years old at the beginning of the campaign. He was a tall, thin man with a square jaw and prominent sideburns, a Napoleonic general straight out of central casting. He was born into a poor family and apprenticed to a dyer. Boredom drove him into the army. What distinguished Lon as an officer was bravery and an absolutely relentless aggressiveness. Lon was a restless soul, always eager to move, instinctively pushing forward. Many generals who fight this way are butchers, who use brute force to keep up their momentum, but Lon was a resourceful, subtle tactician. He had a sixth sense for enemy weak points and alternate routes to his objective. Lon was a brilliant soldier, but like Napoleon, he was also a fervent Jacobin and owed his ascendance to politics as well as to competence. Unlike Napoleon, Lon didn't have any powerful patrons, and after the Jacobins were overthrown, he was dismissed from active service. But Lon had developed a taste for military life, and he believed in the cause. The army would not be rid of him that easily. He promptly resigned and re-enlisted as a private, and was assigned to the Army of Italy. Word quickly spread that this new volunteer was massively overqualified to be an ordinary line soldier, and Lon was appointed to command a demi-brigade. However, this type of field promotion was purely temporary. It could be made or unmade with the stroke of a pen at the discretion of the army commander. As far as headquarters in Paris was concerned, Jean Lan was still an enlisted man. His position became even more tenuous when his understrength demi-brigade was disbanded and absorbed into other units. Theoretically, Lon should have reverted to his original rank and returned to army headquarters for reassignment. However, he was still in camp in Nice when Napoleon arrived to take command, and Bonaparte decided to let him stay and keep his temporary rank. There would be a need for spare officers to fill the vacancies that were sure to come after the coming bloodshed. It was a fortuitous decision. Within a short time, Lon would become one of Napoleon's most trusted subordinates, and probably his closest friend. Napoleon recognized his potential and mentored him in the more formal aspects of military knowledge. He credited Lon's future success to these lessons, famously saying, quote, I found him a pygmy and left him a giant, end quote. Lon surely didn't mind. He idolized Napoleon, which was the type of relationship Napoleon preferred. I think it was this dynamic that made Lon one of the few people who could tell the unvarnished truth to Napoleon's face without provoking his anger. Like many powerful men, as Napoleon's stature rose, his ego swelled and he found it nearly impossible to graciously accept criticism. After he crowned himself emperor, Lon was one of the few people in his life who could keep him grounded. There was real human affection between the two men. They had similar troubles in their romantic lives, and consoled each other through the rough patches. Lon also shared Napoleon's explosive temper, but unfortunately was much less able to control it. His closeness with Napoleon earned Lon a bitter rival in Joachim Murat, Bonaparte's next closest friend. For over a decade, the two men would vie for Napoleon's attention, like two high school boys with a crush on the same girl. When Lon was mortally wounded in 1809, Napoleon put aside all other responsibilities for several hours to stay by Lon's side, holding his hand trying to talk him through his fear and pain. When his old friend finally passed away, Napoleon burst into tears, sobbed like an infant in front of the whole army. Together, these men, along with thousands of others, of course, were about to embark on a military operation without previous precedent in modern times. So, what was the situation in northwestern Italy at the beginning of the campaign? The Army of Italy was outnumbered. Napoleon had around 42,000 men, compared to about 60,000 coalition troops in the region. However, those raw numbers are deceptive. 
The coalition forces were divided between the Piedmontese field army of around 25,000 men and an Austrian field army of around 30,000, with the remainder scattered in garrison units. Those two armies were not only separate on paper. Each had their own supply, communication, and command structures, and each answered to different national governments. This wasn't like when the British and American troops fought alongside one another in the Second World War under a unified command structure, more like two entirely independent armies who happened to be fighting a common enemy. This division among the coalition forces would be the key to the campaign. It reflected a deeper geopolitical division between the Allies. Piedmont's commitment to the war was wavering, and everyone knew it. Much like Spain, Piedmont's membership in the coalition had never made much sense. Piedmont had ambitions to expand its territory in northern Italy, which naturally brought them into conflict with Austria and made them a natural ally of France. But, just like in the other monarchies of Europe, those questions of national interest had been forsaken, overtaken by war fever after the execution of King Louis. The Piedmontese were finding it increasingly untenable to maintain this dubious war. The small Piedmontese army had borne the brunt of the fighting in this theater of the war for over three years. Without Austrian support, it's unlikely they would have even made it to 1796. Piedmont had even been forced to ask the Austrians for a general to lead their army after successive Piedmontese commanders proved incapable. Austria sent Lord Michael Coley. At the beginning of 1796, Coley sent a report back to Vienna, warning that his new Piedmontese masters were contemplating peace with France. He believed they might not last out the year. If Napoleon had his way, they wouldn't even make it to the summer. The area of operations for this campaign was roughly in the shape of a quadrilateral, with the Alps forming the northern and western edges, the Adar River forming the eastern edge, and the border between Piedmont and neutral Genoa forming the southern edge. Now, if you can't picture that, don't worry. I'll be doing my best to tell this story in a way that's intelligible without a map or any other kind of visual aid. If you don't want to worry about geography and just focus on the narrative, this should be perfectly easy to follow. But if you do want a map, I'll post one on social media. Anyway, back to our quadrilateral. The 26,000-man Piedmontese army under General Coley guarded the western half of the quadrilateral, closest to France. The 30,000-man Austrian army under General Johann Beaulieu guarded the eastern half. Napoleon and the Army of Italy were at the bottom edge, slightly west of center. Now, you've heard me mention Napoleon's famous plan for an offensive about a million times. Well, here it is. The army would push rapidly northeast, then swing due north, effectively driving a wedge between the two coalition armies and cutting the Piedmontese off from the Austrian support that had been so vital in propping up their war effort. Bonaparte believed that if the army moved quickly, they would have enough time to complete the maneuver, then turn and crush the isolated Piedmontese army with the main force, while smaller detachments kept the Austrians busy. In military science, this type of maneuver in which a commander seizes the middle ground between two enemy forces is known as the strategy of the central position. It's risky, but executed with the proper speed and aggression, it enables a small army to take the offensive against much larger opponents. Speed was paramount for several reasons. First, to keep the Allied armies from uniting. Second, to defeat the Piedmontese before the Austrians could realize what was going on and do anything about it. Lastly, it was vitally important to get the Army of Italy out of the mountains and into the fertile, populated heartland of Piedmont where they could easily live off the land and requisition supplies from the enemy. Napoleon had done his best to whip his men into shape, but it had been less than two weeks since he'd found the army of Italy totally unsupplied and on the verge of mutiny. He'd only been able to do so much to improve their situation. The second the campaign started, the clock started ticking on the army's commitment. Napoleon had promised them food, drink, clothing, and plunder. 
There was a limit to the hardship and deprivation the men could endure before they would demand he deliver. If Napoleon could conquer Piedmont before that limit was reached, he would be able to make good on all of his promises and more. If not, well, several Republican generals had been lynched by their own mutinous troops. I think Bonaparte would have been smart enough to extricate himself before things got that far, but who knows? He certainly understood that it was important to keep his men happy. Napoleon split his field army into three groups. These are referred to in the literature as corps, although they don't bear much resemblance to a modern army corps. The largest was 17,000 men under General Massena, 11,000 would be under General Augereau, and 9,000 under Serrier. Augereau's corps would take the center position and make the main advance north, severing the roads that might connect the two coalition armies. Massena would strike northeast in the direction of the Austrians to keep them busy. Serrier's corps would advance directly towards the main Piedmontese defensive line to keep them tied down while Augereau maneuvered towards their rear. Essentially, there was a seam where the two areas of operations of the coalition armies met. Serrier and Massena would hold it open at either side, then Napoleon would use Augereau's corps as a wedge to widen that seam. The Austrian general, Beaulieu, believed the French would attack east along the coast. If you'll recall last episode, Beaulieu had already begun concentrating his forces, and sent an advance guard of around 6,000 men to attack a detachment under the young Corsican general Cervoni, which he believed was the spearhead of Napoleon's offensive. Cervoni conducted a brilliant fighting retreat. As the Austrians chased him, they drew further from the rest of their army, and their increasingly exposed right flank stood right in the path of Massena's corps. The first major engagement of the campaign began on April 11, 1796. Around 6,000 men of that Austrian advance guard under General Eugen Argento attacked Cervoni's rearguard, who were entrenched on a hill outside the village of Montenote. The French initially numbered around 1,000, but were soon reinforced to nearly 3,000. They were outnumbered, but had a strong position on an old fort on that hilltop. It was a bloody fight. The Austrians suffered terrible losses in repeated assaults. The French nearly broke and ran, but were rallied by their commander, who made each man swear an oath on the spot to fight to the death. Fortunately for the Republicans, it wouldn't come to that. Massena was already on his way with around 6,000 reinforcements. They marched through the night in thick fog. The next morning, the Austrians awoke to find they were facing a force of nearly equal size. Now, it was the Republicans' turn to attack. The Austrians held firm at first, but Massena personally led a brigade around their flank and launched a devastating surprise charge on the Austrian rear. Most of the Austrian force scattered in panic, abandoning their artillery. Many even dropped their muskets. It was a rout. General Argento bowed to the inevitable and ordered a retreat. By the end of the day, only 700 of his original 6,000 men were available for duty. Over 2,000 had been killed, wounded, or captured, and the rest were scattered over miles of Italian countryside. Argento's advance guard was neutralized for the time being. The French had lost about 800 men, killed, wounded, or captured. Not a small price to pay, but by the cold logic of military strategy, a bargain. They had also captured valuable supplies. In their panic, the Austrians had left behind 12 cannon and thousands of muskets. That demi-brigade that had been forced to begin the campaign without muskets was now finally armed. Napoleon had not been present, but he was exuberant. His report back to Paris begins with, Long live the Republic, punctuated with an exclamation point. The very next day, April 13th, Augereau's corps made contact with the Piedmontese. This engagement is referred to as the Battle of Milasimo, but it's a bit misleading to think of it as a single battle between two distinct formations. In fact, 
Millicima was a series of loosely connected skirmishes in which various parts of Ogero's corps encountered various scattered Piedmontese units, roughly in the vicinity of the town of Millicima. The Piedmontese were pushed back, but in several places they inflicted unexpected casualties as they retreated. Several hundred Piedmontese coalesced at the village of Coseria, where they fortified a ruined castle. Upon encountering this fortification, Ogero sent word back to Napoleon, asking him how to proceed. Napoleon told him take it at all costs as quickly as possible. Ogero ordered repeated assaults, but the position was too strong and the defenders fought with determination. The castle held out all day at the cost of around 700 French casualties, nearly as many as had been lost at Montenote against a force nearly ten times larger. After the campaign, Napoleon would blame his own impatience for the unnecessary casualties. Fortunately for the French, the castle was a temporary refuge. The Piedmontese hadn't had time to properly prepare for a protracted siege. By morning, they were nearly out of water and ammunition, and soon surrendered. Not only was it a bloody affair, the resistance at Coseria cost hours of time in an operation that entirely depended on speed. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Meanwhile, back on the eastern flank, Masena's men seized the vital crossroads at Carcare, thus severing the first of the main roads between the Austrian and Piedmontese armies. To beat the Austrians there, they had executed another night march. In case you missed it, these men started the campaign with a night march to Montenote, then fought in a battle that day, then executed a second night march. That's a lot of effort on very little rest. After the castle at Coseria surrendered, Napoleon moved most of Ogero's corps to join up with Massena for a joint assault on the town of Dago. After his defeat at Montenote, Argento had fallen back to Dago, where he had rallied the stragglers from the advance guard and received reinforcements, adding up to a total of about 12,000 men. This represented the last major concentration of Austrian troops in the area. If Napoleon could neutralize this force, he would be free to turn his full attention to the Piedmontese. On April 14th, the French stormed the town. Dago was well fortified. There was no opportunity for fancy maneuvers. The French could do nothing but summon up their daring for a frontal assault. The fighting was fierce and bloody, but mercifully short. The Republicans occupied the town. The cost had been about 1,500 French casualties and 3,000 Austrian. It had been an unbelievably tough couple of days for these men. Nearly constant marching and fighting on nowhere near enough rest or food. Now it seemed like the army had turned a corner and the way was clear to the rich Piedmontese heartland. And so, in the wake of the French victory, discipline broke down in the army of Italy. Thousands of men drifted away from their units to drink, eat, loot, and celebrate. I would imagine many of their officers and sergeants turned a blind eye. It was an unspoken rule of 18th century army life that soldiers were allowed to engage in this type of behavior on occasion. And who could deny them that right after what they'd been through? Unfortunately for the French, as it would turn out, the Battle of Dago was not actually over. 
Early the next morning, a fresh Austrian brigade arrived on the scene. Boosted by these unexpected reinforcements, General Argento decided to reform his shattered army and attempt a counterattack. He caught the hungover French completely by surprise. Supposedly, Massena had to bolt out of a young woman's bedroom to take command in his pajamas. A good story, but probably apocryphal. Whatever they were wearing, the French tore out of Dago as fast as they could, and the Austrians returned to their defensive positions. What followed was nearly an exact replay of the day before. The Republicans launched an assault and retook the town after a short, sharp fight. Another thousand Frenchmen were killed, wounded, or captured, along with around 2,000 Austrians. A very costly night of partying. It was a fiasco, and yet again Napoleon's timetable was thrown off. But it didn't matter in the grand scheme of things. The French had won the battle and inflicted more casualties on the Austrians. The first phase of the plan had worked. That seam between the two coalition armies had become a chasm, and the way was clear to continue the advance and widen it even further. Napoleon's strategy was working. The action on the western flank, facing the Austrians, slowed down for the next few days. Massena sent out the occasional patrol to keep an eye on the Austrians, but mostly rested his men and requisitioned supplies. Napoleon transferred much of Augereau's corps back west, where Serrouillet was preparing to strike the first major blow against the Piedmontese. General Coley had concentrated about 13,000 men to face Serrouillet's advance, but had been avoiding battle, falling back until he found an ideal defensive position. On April 16th, he finally settled on the village of Cheva, where he set up a defensive line in good, high ground, anchored on each flank by rivers. Napoleon attempted the tactic he had used against the Austrians with so much success, launching a frontal assault, coordinated with a flanking maneuver to strike from the rear. But the rivers on either side of Coley's line made it impossible. The French were held up for several days. Frustrated, Bonaparte moved some of Massena's corps upriver of the Piedmontese position, crossed there, and prepared to attack Cheva from two directions. The attack was to begin on the morning of April 21st, but the French awoke to find Coley had slipped away yet again. Napoleon unleashed his cavalry commander, General Stengel, to harass the retreating enemy. They succeeded in slowing down retreat, but at the cost of Stengel's life. Coley had decided to make his next stand at the village of Mondovi. The terrain there was similar to Cheva, and he planned to once again use the hills and rivers to set up a strong defensive line and delay the French as long as he could. However, the army of Italy was hot on his heels. Stengel's cavalry had slowed the Piedmontese army to a crawl. By the time Coley's army arrived at Mondovi on April 21st, they were exhausted and Serrouillet was only hours behind them. There was no time to prepare a proper defense. The French pounced immediately. Serrouillet led the charge personally. A frontal assault is never easy, but the Piedmontese were too exhausted and demoralized to put up much of a fight. Serrouillet took the town, and Coley's men fell back in disorder, leaving behind all of their artillery and the army's main supply depot. Just like at Dago, the French promptly scattered to loot and party. This time, there was no one to interrupt them, and they slowly filtered back to their units over the course of the next day, with their bellies and knapsacks full for a change. With the fall of Mondovi, Piedmont was in serious jeopardy. Mondovi was the terminus of the main highway north to the Piedmontese capital at Turin, just 80 kilometers or 50 miles away. It's also right on a geographical border. South of the town is the Alpine foothills, rough, rocky terrain. North of the town is nothing but gentle, rolling plains, well-populated agricultural land with lots of roads and plenty of good food for foraging soldiers, ideal conditions for the quick movement of a Republican army, and very few good defensive positions where they might be stopped. 
Napoleon had promised his troops that he would lead them into the most fertile plains in the world. From the heights outside Mondovi, they could see those plains, and there was no one standing in their way. At the royal court in Turin, panic began to set in. All that stood between them and the Republicans was Coley's depleted, demoralized army. The Austrians would be no help. They were still reeling from their defeats at Montenote and Dago, and bracing for a French offensive that would never come. The Piedmontese king, Victor Amadeus, fled the capital. Napoleon rested his men at Mondovi for a few days, then on April 23rd began the march on Turin, facing almost no opposition. That evening he received a message from Coley, proposing a ceasefire. Bonaparte refused. He knew how close the army was to total victory, and was not interested in anything short of total surrender. He took the offer as confirmation that Piedmont was on its last legs, and ordered his generals to advance as quickly as possible. On April 25th, the French occupied the towns of Carrasco and Alba, thus severing the last road that connected the Austrian and Piedmontese zones of operation. Any slim hope of the Austrians marching to save Turin was now extinguished. With his objective achieved, Napoleon paused to rest and consolidate his forces. He sent an emissary to the Piedmontese. Now that their situation was beyond hope, he was willing to talk terms for an armistice. King Victor Amadeus agreed to negotiate, and sent representatives authorized to cut a deal with Bonaparte. Of course, this wasn't much of a negotiation. Napoleon was in a position to dictate terms, and he knew it. He did not go easy on them. Under Bonaparte's proposal, Piedmont would pay an indemnity of 50 million francs, and that was to be in hard cash, gold or silver, not credit or paper money. It's hard to translate that into modern currency, but to put it in perspective, that's more than ten times what the entire campaign had cost. On top of that, the Piedmontese government would provide food and supplies for the Army of Italy. French troops would be given free passage over Piedmontese territory, and key strategic fortresses within Piedmont would be handed over to French garrisons. In effect, Piedmont would be ceding much of its sovereignty to revolutionary France. Still, the diplomats from Turin had little choice but to agree. On the 28th of April, 1796, the armistice of Carrasco was ratified by King Victor Amadeus. Piedmont was out of the war. It had been 18 days since the campaign began. The mood within the army of Italy was jubilant. It had been a brutally hard two weeks, but they had achieved the goal that had eluded them since the very beginning of the war. They feasted on the spoils of war, and in the coming days, as Piedmont made good on the conditions of the armistice, they were issued new uniforms, shoes, and equipment. Bonaparte even provided wine free of charge. Napoleon allowed them to forage for food freely and have their fun, but he cracked down hard on more serious breaches of discipline. As he put it, quote, There is not so much pillaging. The initial thirst of an army in want of everything has been quenched. There was an excuse for these unfortunate fellows, who, after having sighed for three years on the summit of the Alps, reached the promised land and decided to enjoy it. I have had three of them shot, and a half-dozen condemned to hard labor. Tomorrow, a corporal and some soldiers, who stole the sacred vessels from a church, are to be shot. In three days, discipline will be severely established, and an astonished Italy will admire the moderation of our army, as it already admires its courage. This occasions me great pain, and makes me pass unhappy moments. Horrors, which make me shudder, have been committed. Happily, the Piedmontese army, during its retreat, committed still greater ones. End quote. So, as you can see, Napoleon did allow his troops a certain latitude, but only within limits. Those limits had to do with his own personal scruples, but also with public opinion. But more important than the food or the loot 
the army finally got paid, and not with the paper scrip from the directory. Bonaparte gave every man his full share of back pay, directly from the gold and silver from the Piedmontese indemnity, before he sent anything back to Paris. For most of them, this was the first time in years they were comfortable, well-fed, and had money in their pockets. A general who delivers quick, relatively bloodless victories and looks after his army's well-being is a popular general. Napoleon had won the army's loyalty. The soldiers were pleased with Napoleon, and he was pleased with himself. If you'll recall, he'd been a nervous wreck at the beginning of the campaign, fretting over every detail and making preemptive excuses in his reports. That anxiety was still evident during the early days of the offensive. Napoleon had been mostly static, confining himself to his headquarters miles away from the action. In the early battles of the campaign, he had been content to give battlefield tactical command to his subordinates. But as the army began racking up victories, and he began to see his plan coming into fruition, Bonaparte's confidence returned, and he became increasingly hands-on. By the time the army arrived at Carrasco, he was well on his way to becoming an active, even restless commander. For the rest of our story, while on campaign, Bonaparte will never be far from the front, and always on the move. Napoleon maintained a cool, detached posture in front of the Piedmontese envoys, but after Carrasco, he was nearly giddy with victory. All of his life, he dreamed of becoming one of history's great commanders. He'd had a few hints of what that might be like at Toulon on 13 Vendemiaire, but this was his first real taste of glory. Naturally, he compared himself to heroes from classical antiquity, most notably, and probably most obviously, Hannibal of Carthage. Napoleon quipped, quote, Hannibal forced his way over the Alps. We outflanked them. End quote. The only damper on his exuberance was Josephine. Since leaving Paris, Napoleon had somehow made the time to write to his wife religiously. She had not responded for over a month. After the armistice of Carrasco, Napoleon sent Junot, his closest aide, and his brother Joseph to Paris to present the deal to the government and to deliver battle flags captured from the Piedmontese army as trophies of war. He also gave them a secondary mission, to check up on Josephine. He gave his brother a letter, which he was to hand-deliver to her personally. Quote, You have been days without writing me. What are you doing, then? I am not jealous, but sometimes uneasy. Come soon. I warn you, if you tarry, you will find me ill. Fatigue and absence are too much for me at the same time. Junot bears to Paris twenty-two flags. You ought to return with him. Do you understand? You will soon be beside me, on my chest, in my arms. Take wings, come quickly, but travel gently. End quote. Of course, Napoleon would not sit idly in Piedmont waiting for his wife. The Austrians had a good intelligence network, and were well appraised of every move made by the Piedmontese government. They were aware of the armistice of Carrasco almost as soon as it was signed, and were already on the move. Napoleon worried it was the beginning of a counteroffensive, but Beaulieu's army was still smarting from the bloody defeats of the previous week, and in no condition for an attack. They were preparing new defensive positions because it was obvious to anyone with a map that with Piedmont subdued, Napoleon's next target would be Milan, the richest, most important city in northwestern Italy, and the unofficial capital of the Habsburg holdings on the peninsula. If Napoleon hoped to keep up the momentum of his offensive, he would have to strike soon. But that will have to wait for next time. Before we go, I want to reiterate what a spectacular feat Bonaparte and his army had just performed. Sure, everyone knew the Piedmontese government was wavering, but to finish them off in two weeks was unheard of. And not only had Napoleon forced them to the negotiating table, he'd beaten them so badly he'd been able to dictate terms. 
the armistice of Carrasco was much closer to a surrender than a ceasefire. Over the course of just two weeks, his first two weeks in the field as an army commander, Napoleon had changed the entire course of the War of the First Coalition, and completely transformed his own reputation and that of the Army of Italy. The cost of all this glory had been roughly 6,000 French casualties. That's not an insignificant number out of a force of 42,000, just under 15%. Granted, some of those men were only lightly wounded and able to return to duty very quickly, but that's still a big enough number that the army felt the cost. But if you set aside the individual pain and tragedy experienced by those men and the people who cared about them, and look at the big strategic picture, 6,000 casualties was a miraculously low price to pay for all the success achieved by the army. That said, they still had a long way to go. Carrasco represented the end of phase one of Napoleon's plan but they would have to fight their way through hundreds of miles of enemy territory before the last phase was complete. Predictably, Napoleon had already begun another one of his intense letter-writing campaigns, begging the Directory for reinforcements. I'll close out today by reading you the famous proclamation Bonaparte made to the army on April 26th, the day the armistice was signed. Quote, Soldiers, in fifteen days you have won six victories, captured twenty-one battle flags, fifty-five cannon, several fortresses, and conquered the richest part of Piedmont. You have taken fifteen thousand prisoners, and killed or wounded ten thousand men. Hitherto you had fought on sterile rocks, which bear witness to your courage, but were useless to your country. Today you equal by your services the armies of the north and of the Rhine. Devoid of everything, you have supplied everything. You have won battles without cannon, crossed rivers without bridges, accomplished forced marches without shoes, camped without brandy, and often without bread. Soldiers of liberty, only republican phalanxes could have endured what you have endured. Soldiers, you have our thanks. The grateful fatherland will owe its prosperity to you. The two armies which recently attacked you with audacity are fleeing before you in terror. The wicked men who laughed at your misery and rejoiced at the thoughts of the triumph of your enemies are confounded and trembling. But soldiers, as yet you have done nothing compared to what remains to be done. Undoubtedly the greatest obstacles have been overcome but you still have battles to fight, cities to capture, rivers to cross. Is there one among you whose courage is abating? No, all of you are consumed with a desire to extend the glory of the French people. All of you long to humiliate these arrogant kings who dare contemplate placing us in chains. All of you desire to dictate a glorious peace, one which will indemnify the fatherland for the immense sacrifices it has made. All of you wish to be able to say, with pride as you return to your villages, I was with the victorious army of Italy. I promise you the conquest of Italy, but on one condition. You must swear to respect the people you liberate, and repress the horrible pillage in which scoundrels, excited by the enemy, have indulged. Without that, you will not be liberators, but a pestilence and your victory, your courage, your success, and the blood of your brothers who have perished will all be lost along with honor and glory. End quote. Next time, Napoleon will continue the offensive into northern Italy, struggling to maintain his momentum and build on his success, and, as we'll see, conquest will bring rewards, but also new problems. Until then, I'll remind you one more time to go check out some of the other podcasts on our podcast network, Recorded History. A whole crop of new shows have joined, and there's so much good stuff, it's hard to keep track. You can find them at recordedhistory.net, or search for Recorded History on social media. Anyway, until next time, thanks for listening.
Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. <laughs>